Houston, Texas, June 2002. The Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center is arguably the most important scientific complex in American history. 1,620 acres strong and separated among 100 buildings, the center has overseen NASA's flight training and scientific research. It also served as mission control for the Apollo program that put humankind on the moon. Over 30 years after humankind touched down on the lunar surface, a Jeep Cherokee pulled up to the side of the Space Center's security checkpoint, which granted access to the Building 31 North Laboratory Complex. It had been just a year since the September 11 terrorist attacks, and all major governmental buildings on American soil had increased their security. The Space Center was no exception. But the guard recognized the young gentleman in the driver's seat. He was an intern named Tad Roberts, 25 years old. If you've ever met a scientist or an intern, then you know they typically keep odd working hours. And so the guard had no problem letting Tad and his fellow companions, Tiffany Fowler and 19-year-old Shea Sauer, through the gate. Nothing was particularly unusual about this, though the guard did note that Tad must have purchased a new car, as the Jeep was different than the vehicle he usually drove. Tad, known for his outgoing nature, simply told the officer that he'd borrowed it to help a friend move into a new house. The trio parked the car by the entryway and then went about accessing the security camera, overriding their feeds with looped video of empty hallway that they had recorded in secret while daytime monitors were changing guard. Shay stayed behind to watch the cameras, while Tiffany and Tad grabbed two duffel bags and infiltrated the building by use of a security code that Tad's former coworker had emailed them. The duo made for the bathroom and quickly changed into wetsuits, complete with oxygen tanks, seemingly prepared for more of a deep sea dive than a jaunt through the heart of the American space program. But there was good reason for this unusual getup. Their targets were secured within an oxygenless chamber, sealed off with an airlock, and impregnated with nitrogen. The vault they needed to access was protected by several different security code panels. In something straight out of Mission Impossible, Tad and Tiffany used a powdered mixture of fluorite, gypsum, and calcite, which fluoresced under blacklight. Once dusted, the panels indicated the fingerprints on the telltale buttons, and based on the pressure marks revealed by the powder, Tad was able to figure out the correct order he needed to press. He was granted access to the vault. The clock started. The team would have 15 minutes to get in and out without their oxygen depleting, which left them just three minutes to crack the safe securing their target. After a failed attempt at access, and with time quickly running out, Tiffany and Tad unbolted the 600-pound safe from the floor and wheeled it out on a dolly. From there, they pushed the safe back onto their getaway jeep and drove away into the night. Inside the safe was a priceless artifact, and a treasure to be sure. But it wasn't from this world.
Lunar samples on Earth come from three moon explorations. The United States Apollo program, which ran from 1969 to 1972, the Soviet Luna program in the 70s, and rocks generously donated by the moon itself in the form of fallen meteorites. When Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins attempted landing on Earth's nearest celestial neighbor, their intent was to scout the best place for taking samples of the moon's geological composition. And when they made it back to Earth, thereby solidifying a major milestone in human civilization, they didn't come back empty-handed. They came back with moon rocks. Over the next several years, more samples were collected by both the American and Soviet space programs. A good majority of the American samples made their way to the Space Center for archiving and laboratory testing. When the first men on the moon landed back on Earth, they had to undergo a small period of quarantine. Scientists were pretty sure there weren't any weird Andromeda strain-esque space viruses on the moon, but they also figured it was better to be safe than sorry. During this brief period of containment, which I can imagine was already dreadfully boring and insufferable, Armstrong and company had to endure something even worse, a visit from President Richard Nixon. Tricky Dick was absolutely jazzed to be U.S. president when Apollo landed on the moon, even though the moon landing project had been spearheaded by President John F. Kennedy. In typical Nixonian fashion, he decided to capitalize off the effort by taking some of the moon rocks, fragmenting them into pebble-sized segments, and distributing them as goodwill gifts to nations all over the world. He repeated this again with a rock taken from the 1972 moon landing, which was the last time humankind ever walked across the lunar surface. In total, 270 fragments were encased in lucite, accompanied by a placard with the country's respective flag, and sent out to the heads of nations and representatives of the 50 American states. To this day, nearly 180 of these rocks are missing. First and foremost, before we dive into the accounts of general negligence, bad cataloging, political unrest, and the occasional assassination that contributed to the disappearance of the lunar fragments, let's address the major reason why so many of them went missing. We as a species just generally assumed in the 1970s that we'd be visiting the moon a whole lot more often than literally none of the times we've ever gone back. While the gift of a moon rock was no doubt pretty cool, I mean, I'd love one, most people didn't picture them as eventually going on to become particularly rare and regard them more with a general novelty at best. It also didn't help that the 1970s was an exceptionally turbulent time for many of the world governments, who were either dealing with the fallout of collapsing dictatorships, revolution, regime changes, decolonization, and of course, the Soviet Union just being the Soviet Union. One of the countries that received the Goodwill Rocks, as they became to be known, was the Republic of Honduras. In 1993, a formal colonel named Roberto Agustia Ugarte saw that Sotheby's auction house was selling three 0.2-gram-sized lunar pebbles that could only be seen through a microscope. Their price? $442,500. So Ugarte got to thinking, if these grains of lunar sand could go for that much, then what about an actual fragment you could, you know see with the naked eye. Somehow, probably because of his connections to the government, he got his hand on the rock and covered up the stars on the Honduran flag on the placard in an attempt to disguise the country of origin. He then started to put out feelers for potential buyers. 
Now this brings us to an unlikely character, Alan Rosen, a gentleman originally from Florida, making a living by selling fruit juice back to the United States. I'm assuming more of a series of trucks than a roadside lemonade stand. Rosen found out about Ugarte's rare find and claimed to have checked in with NASA to see if it was, you know, okay to proceed with a purchase like that. He recalls that during the correspondence, NASA eventually said it was fine and that the moon rock was a gift not considered the property of the United States. Perhaps Rosen didn't know how Ugarte had acquired it, and in any case, he purchased the Goodwill fragment in 1996 for $50,000. In 1998, a senior special agent, Joseph Guthines of NASA's Office of the Inspector General, decided to go in search of the missing rocks, which he believed had slipped through the cracks of academia and science and fallen onto the black market. He was right. Guthines spearheaded Operation Lunar Eclipse in the hopes of catching those who were selling forgeries and authentic samples alike. This began with an ad placed in USA Today, simply titled, Moon Rocks Wanted. It just so happened that the juice man himself, Alan Rosen, responded to the ad with an offer, which ended up being $5 million for the return of the moon rock. In order to foot the bill, the recon team enlisted some funding of 1992 and 1996 presidential candidate, billionaire, and reoccurring character on Nickelodeon's All That, Ross Perot. NASA, being one of the few branches of the American government not known for its intimidating operatives, sent U.S. Customs and Border agents undercover to assist Scott Hines, who met with Rosen at a restaurant in Miami, Florida. There was no transaction. The agents confiscated the lunar fragment under the pretense that it had been illegally imported into the United States, with their defense being something-something the proper forms hadn't been filled out. This isn't to say that Rosen did anything deliberately illegal, though objectively shady. I'm not here to lob judgments or accusations, mostly because I now live in a country with really strict defamation laws. Anyways, this affair culminated in 2001 in what is perhaps the dumbest, though albeit accurate, name for a lawsuit ever. United States versus one lucite ball containing lunar material, parentheses, one moon rock, and one 10-inch by 14-inch wooden plaque. Not a very sexy name. In 2003, the U.S. awarded the government of Honduras the rightful claim to the moon rock and made sure it found its way into the presumably more responsible hands of President Ricardo Maduro. If you should ever find yourself in Tegucigalpa, feel free to drop by the Centro Interactivo Chiminique if you want to see the rock on display. But this was not the end of Joseph Gotthein's hunt for the missing rocks. Not by a long shot. After leaving NASA, Guthines went on to become a lawyer, but kept things close to home by remaining in the Houston area. He also served as a college instructor in criminal justice at the University of Phoenix. And this is where Guthines turned his missing moon rock caper into an ongoing treasure hunt, by enlisting in the help of his own grad students. Kind of like how to get away with murder, but with geology, and yet shockingly the same amount of murder, it turns out. We shift the action from sunny Houston, Texas, to a little Mediterranean nation called Cyprus, known for its beautiful geography, beautiful people, banger entries in the last two Eurovisions, and one of the longest ongoing territorial disputes in world history. To sum it up, Cyprus used to be occupied by the Ottoman Empire until 1925 when the British, who hadn't given up on that colonizing everywhere all the time thing quite yet, annexed the islands for themselves. This did not make the people of Cyprus, caught between some of the most powerful emperors in all of civilization, too happy. 
to both deny culpability and to ward off possible revolt, you know, like white people do, the British fomented dispute between Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots. And surprise, it worked. But believe it or not, this scheme didn't last that long. Eventually, everyone realized people were miserable and Britain wasn't really gaining anything from civil unrest. You see, Turkey and Greece had been fighting with each other since literally before Christ. So the British sort of just shrugged and decided to forge an agreement between those two countries, Greece and Turkey, the two nations who laid claim on the basis of national identity to the island nation of Cyprus. And in 1960, the Republic of Cyprus came to be. Not everyone was super happy with the arrangement, but it mostly kept the peace. Greece was content that Cyprus would eventually be absorbed back into their nation, and Turkey was content that absolutely none of that would happen, ever. Most of this peace lay at the feet of Cyprus's leader and founding father, Archbishop Makarios III, who became the country's first president in 1960. He then went on to do his very best while everyone and their grandmother attempted to kill him. During his tenure, Makarios III dodged three different assassination attempts. In 1967, the government of Greece was overthrown by a military junta, and their main goal was a nice tasty little baklava called Cyprus. Makarios III, who had spent most of his time A, not being killed, and B, trying to keep the peace between Turkish and Greek Cypriots, was not pleased with this. So, Greece decided to go the logical route and broker peace talks. Just kidding, they staged a coup. After that, things escalated quickly. Lots of people died, and because when one nation decides to invade another nation that also sort of belongs to another nation, that nation decides this is as good as any excuse to start a war. And thus, on July 20th, 1974, we get the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. So, two very pissed off countries invading the same country at the same time. What could possibly go wrong? Well, thousands of frightened citizens fleeing their cities and the UN sustaining a permanent headache. The war ended swiftly, with a military partition, sort of like between North and South Korea, placed across the island. This also resulted in the entire abandoning overnight of the resort town of Varosha, which has ever since stood as a slowly rotting ghost town where none are allowed entry under penalty of being shot on sight. Now to illustrate this, imagine if they suddenly dropped a demilitarized zone on top of Miami and you have the right idea. Ever since, Turkey and Greece continue to fight over Cyprus, with the northern part of the nation under Turkish authority and the rest under Greek slash Cypriot jurisdiction. So what does any of this have to do with moon rocks? Well, shortly before everything went to in Cyprus, Nixon chucked a goodwill rock their way, probably not anticipating that he would be forced to resign over Watergate and that Cyprus would still be intact by the end of the 70s. Somewhere in the midst of all the chaos, and probably because people were worried more about their own damn lives than some space pebbles encased in plastic, the rocks vanished, presumably stolen or destroyed. Fast forward to 2009. Enter Guthines and Team Moon. And that's not what they're officially called, just so you know. Like every Mission Impossible film ever, Guthines' moon rock hunt was joined by some special guests. AP reporter Tony Sterling from the Netherlands and Lucy Millet, a reporter from the Cyprus Mail who also happened to be the daughter of its British ambassador. With an international cast of characters on the case, the hunt was on for the embattled nation's missing moon rock. During the investigation, Guthines received a tip from an associate, a space memorabilia collector named Robert Perlman, who had a very interesting lead. 
In an unusual twist to this already strange saga, Perlman uncovered that the space rocks never actually reached the government of Cyprus to begin with, as Nixon had intended. Considering the fact that it wasn't like Tricky Dick himself was going around the world personally like some rock-bestowing Santa Claus, it would make sense that the rocks would be entrusted by his representatives to reach the appropriate places. The agent in question tasked with this for Cyprus turned out to be, well, we actually don't know. It's kind of under wraps, and we're about to find out why. You see, the rock never reached Cyprus in the first place because the diplomat in charge kept the damn thing for himself and then gave it to his son. And here's the thing, America actually knew about this for an uncomfortably long time. Congress received a tip in 2003 informing them of this fact. Since getting someone to hand over a priceless artifact usually requires a major government or two getting pissed off enough at you, Guthines alerted the American embassy in Cyprus as well as the Cypriot government and then filed a request for a congressional inquiry. But being that this was 2003, the U.S. Congress had much bigger fish to fry, namely the invasion of Iraq. Don't get me started. So Guthines went about resorting to his last option, public shame. Since he now had a bunch of journalists in his coterie, it wasn't hard to convince the press to get the word out there in hopes that the parties involved would do the right thing and turn over the moon rock. And five months later, that bad press, it worked. Not every hunt for a missing lunar fragment has involved as much drama. As it turns out, a lot of people who received a rock sort of just forgot about them and likely put both the rocks and their lava lamps into storage as the 70s came to a close. Some of the rocks Guthines tracked down were in the care of a few state governors or the offices of former state governors, which included Bill Clinton of Arkansas. Those were easy enough to locate. Even some of the moon rocks abroad were easily found after a cursory inquiry. For example, the Canadian moon rock was discovered in a storage facility belonging to the Canadian Museum of Nature, which is probably where you want to put a moon rock anyway. Unfortunately, Guthines and his team soon found out that not all of the moon rocks would ever be recovered. After a fire hit the Dunsink Observatory in Dublin, the Irish moon rock was caught up in the debris and summarily disposed of in a landfill across the road, presumably buried under a mountain of empty Guinness bottles. Other moon rocks are most definitely still floating out there on the black market. For example, a woman in California offered Guthines what turned out to be a forgery. And then, of course, there's Malta. The moon rock in the former capital city of Medina actually had a pretty safe and uneventful run until 2004, when the curator of the Museum of Natural History discovered it missing during a routine inspection. The thief left behind the ceremonial placard, so it was very apparent that he or she was only after the rock. When Joseph Guthines found out about the theft, he offered the thieves an amnesty period in which they could return the rock without repercussions. Unfortunately, as of May 2019, it remains missing. Guthines is fairly certain that whoever stole the moon rock has no idea what to do with it. Aside from trying to sell it to a private collector, any attempts to pawn an authentic lunar sample would immediately be flagged by Interpol or some other agency you definitely don't want to piss off. The only minor lead was when Guthines received a mysterious offer of $10,000 for the rock's return, but nothing has come of this since. Another interesting tale comes to us from Romania. In 1965, Nicolae Ceausescu came to power as the communist leader and went on to become easily one of the worst dictators of the 20th century, to the point that even the Soviet Union was like, yikes. 
Obviously, Nixon didn't have a problem with him because he granted him a moon rock during his presidency. When the fall of the Soviet Union occurred in 1989, all of the countries in the Soviet bloc gave up communist rule. This mass revolution was remarkably peaceful and relatively bloodless. But not in Romania, because it turns out that manning a brutal genocidal police state for almost 40 years tends to really piss people off. During the December revolt, Ceausescu responded by ordering the military to gun down protesters. When he realized that the military was slowly starting to come around to siding with the people, Ceausescu and his wife Elena tried to flee by helicopter, but were captured, promptly charged with genocide, and killed by firing squad on Christmas Day. Worst gift ever. But he kind of had it coming. Now the thing about revolutions is that they are messy, and sometimes things get lost or misplaced. Ceausescu's estate was eventually sold off, and among the items was the moon rock. Gutheins and Team Moon were on the case, and their first approach was to simply ask Romania if they knew who had bought the lunar sample. But the country was like, moon rock? What moon rock? Because everyone in Romania is a vampire claiming they had never even received such a thing. Since both Nixon and Ceausescu were not exactly known for being the most honest leaders of the 20th century, Gotthines turned to the U.S. government's national archives. And the librarians there unanimously agreed that Romania was full of shit. Unfortunately, nothing has come about that since, and the hunt for the Romanian moonrock remains. Speaking of dictators, Francisco Franco was another recipient of Nixon's Goodwill Rocks. Franco had come to power during the Spanish Civil War, and like most of the world leaders in this episode, not exactly a good person. Naturally, Nixon once referred to him as a loyal friend and ally of the United States. Allegedly, Franco actually kept the Moon Rocks safe as part of his personal collection. His appointed successor, Admiral Luis Carrero Carrero, Luis Carrero Blanco, I can't roll my R's, I'm sorry, also received a moon rock from the Apollo 17 landing, bestowed to him by U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Blanco didn't get to enjoy it for long. On December 20th, 1973, Blanco was on his way to church when an explosion sent his car soaring 66 feet through the air over the church in question, where it landed on a second floor balcony. Blanco actually survived the ordeal, for a little while anyway, before he succumbed to his injuries. In the five months leading to Blanco's death, a boss skeptic group, the ETA, had secretly been tunneling beneath Blanco's routine church route under the guise of student sculptors. They used stolen ordnance to blow up Franco's would-be successor, who is often referred to, in Gallo's humor, as Spain's first astronaut. Blanco's lunar rock remained in the family until one of his descendants handed it over to a National Science Museum in the 2000s. As for Franco, he died not long after in 1975. And at that point, the Spanish decided it would be best to just shrug off the last 40 years of brutal despotism and usher in a democracy, as this pact of forgetting would be the best way to reconcile between the right and the left. And I don't have time to get into the politics of Spain's national amnesia in an episode ostensibly about lost treasure, but look it up if you want to be mad about things. The Apollo 11 moonrock was said to have stayed in the family for a couple of years, first with his wife and then with Franco's granddaughter. Publicly, the Franco family believes the rock may have been lost during a move from one opulent manse to another, but word on the street was that the Francos actually tried to pawn off the moon rock to either a Swiss dealer or Sotheby's, though the family denies this. To be fair, though, I'm sure they deny a lot of things. 
a good majority of lunar samples remain where they should ostensibly belong, safely secured at NASA. When tests are conducted on moon rocks, they are sent off to a secure lab for cataloging as they're deemed contaminated and can provide no additional data. Tad Roberts, who by all accounts fancied himself more of a roguish James Bond type than a scientist, claimed that since nobody was going to be using these rocks anyway, he might as well pocket a few and sell them for cash. Mostly, it seems, he convinced his accomplices to do it simply for the thrill. After Roberts had stolen the rocks, there was just the problem of what to do with them. Roberts enlisted the help of his internet-savvy friend Gordon McWhorter, who allegedly had no idea that Tad had required the moon rocks illegally. The guy worked for NASA. What was he supposed to do? Not believe him? Roberts came up with an alias, or Robinson, sure, why not, and had Gordon put out his internet feelers for a potential buyer. That buyer turned out to be Axel Emmerman, a Belgian amateur mineralogist who salivated over the idea of getting his hands on a slice of some moon and was willing to pony up the cash. But as he began to set up the exchange, he started to grow a bit suspicious. And then he started to do some Googling and found out almost right away that there were some stolen moon rocks out there that NASA really wanted back. History, as we see, tends to repeat itself. Emmerman met Roberts in a Florida restaurant and then went over to Emmerman's hotel to finalize the transaction. Supposedly, Tad joked to Emmerman, I'm just hoping you don't have a wire on you, in hopes that the Belgian wasn't somehow working with the FBI, which technically he wasn't, because the person Tad thought was Emmerman was actually an FBI agent in disguise. Soon, 40 other agents surrounded Tad Roberts. The jig was up. All this went down on July 20th, 2002, exactly 33 years after the first moon landing. Like I said, history repeats itself. Tad Roberts' other accomplices were arrested and charged in due time. Tiffany Fowler and Shay Sauer, not Dr. Seuss characters by the way, were let off on simply probationary charges. But McCorder and Roberts were sentenced to jail. Roberts was released on August 4th, 2008. Now, a good chunk of Tad Roberts' story comes from, well, Tad Roberts. And there have been pointed out some inconsistencies and dubious reports on his behalf. Still, he's out there somewhere, probably not stealing moon rocks, but out there nonetheless. As for Joseph Gutheins and his students, the hunt marches on. There are 180 moon rocks still out there waiting to be discovered. And since it doesn't look like we'll be going to the moon anytime soon, their efforts are highly valued. Maybe further down the line, if humankind gets its act together anyway, going to and from the moon will be as simple as taking a transatlantic flight. And the moon rocks we have on Earth will be just as valuable as the dirt beneath our feet. We look up at the moon every night and it remains, as it has for as long as we've been looking up at the moon, both familiar and mysterious. Who wouldn't want to own a piece of something that looks like it's so close to us, and yet just out of reach? Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like what you heard and want to put me over the moon, then you can leave a good review or rating for Relic in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can also support Relic at Patreon slash Relic and unlock bonus content. I think we've got like two new episodes up. Definitely check them out. You can also now find me on Australian radio. 
If you're a local or in Sydney, you can tune into 2SER 107.3 or stream directly from the website. For non-Aussies, you can catch the uploaded episodes of the segments I produce and co-produce, Vegemite Pizza, as well as 5-Minute Mysteries, if you want to hear quick tales on the unexplained and unsolved. Next time, no ancient culture has captured the attention of the archaeological world more than the Egyptians. For the last 200 years, we've dug up the tombs of the pharaohs and great kings. But, supposedly, there are many more out there waiting to be discovered. And then, of course, there's that curse. The adventure continues. <laughs> <laughs>